The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, um, I wanted to introduce you to someone that you may or may not know. If you are um, a Gen Xer or a geriatric millennial, this person has shaped your life profoundly and you might not even know it. And it's this guy. His name is Lou Pearlman. Raise your hand if you know who Lou Pearlman is. So some of you are really savvy because Lou Pearlman was a music producer. Actually, he put together music groups. And before, before he went to jail, he put together some groups that you really like, even though you've lied to other people that you didn't like them. And the first group was this group, Backstreet Boys. Now I know you're thinking, you're way too smart and sophisticated to like the Backstreet Boys. Like that is like teeny bopper stuff. But I will let you know two things. One, that most of the Backstreet Boys hits were on adult contemporary. And two, 50 million albums didn't buy themselves. Some of you are listening to Backstreet Boys. You could say what you wanna say. But at the same time, he was working with Backstreet Boys. He put together another group, this group, NSYNC. Now, if you remember the mid to late 90s and you battled with a friend about which group was better, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC, I was a youth pastor at the time. I was right in the thick of all of those battles, all of those debates. Whether you like Backstreet more or NSYNC more, one thing is true. Lou Pearlman got all the money. So... Because I was a youth pastor at the time, one of the great things about working with teenagers is that you just get to be a teenager longer. Like you get to stay in adolescence a little bit longer, even though technically adolescence isn't over until you're 26, but you just kind of get to live in that space. Some of you are like, he just called me an adolescent. And I did. But it's till 26 and you get to live in that space and so while I was working with teenagers, one of the things I had to do was kind of keep up with what was happening in the world of teenagers. And at that time, Lou Pearlman was putting together yet another boy band. And so he created this show to both capitalize on what the band would eventually be and to make money on the show called Making the Band. And so they started with like a hundred young guys and they whittled it down trying to see which of the last five were gonna make the band. And that band ended up being these guys. Some of you remember O-Town. Don't act like you don't know who O-Town is. You, you, know, you know what you're thinking right now. Cause I want it all or nothing at all. Don't act like you don't know it. You hear me singing that the rest of, your, rest of the day. Thanks. Well, here's the thing. You're welcome. So here's the thing about O-Town. Is they were going through this show, trying to put together O-Town. And so I was watching Making the Band, the series that was on TV. And when it was down to like 20, they took them all to this party. And the party got out of control. 
and they were all together and they behaved at the party exactly like you would expect a bunch of young 20-something-year-old guys to behave at a party. And it was just crazy. It was insane. And at the end, the guy who was kind of watching over them, like their chaperone person for all of this, was so livid. He gathered them up and like read them the riot act. And then he told them this. He said, you're going to be in show business, in entertainment. If you want to be successful in show business, you have to start behaving better in public. It's like, what do you think the people who just saw what you did think about you? From now on, whenever you enter into an interaction, you need to be mindful of one thing. Think about five things that you want people to say about you when you leave. Like five impressions that you want people to have about you when you leave. And I saw that and thought, that's really good advice. Like to live your life in such a way that when you enter into a situation, you're mindful of the impression that you're leaving. As a matter of fact, I, I lived by that advice for a while. I shared that advice for some people. And then I started to think a little bit more about it. And while there's a certain level where that's really good advice, it really does open the door to being inauthentic and deceitful and devious that when I enter into a conversation and interaction with you, my main thought is how I can impress you or leave you with a favorable impression. And so maybe that wasn't the greatest advice to live by or the greatest advice to tell other people, but there was this truth to it that in our relationships, in our interactions with other people, we actually do have a choice about how we show up. That you can choose how you're going to interact in any given situation. And that's never a reason to be deceitful or dishonest. But it is a reminder that in your life, you actually do have choices. And I get it. Not everybody has the same choice. We don't all have equal choices. Sometimes the choices in front of us, we feel like are bad choices. We don't like either one of these choices, but we still have choices. That you have agency about how you are going to interact at any given time. And that's important to know because over the next seven weeks, we're gonna walk through the life of this patriarch named Joseph. And if you've been around church, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know some of the story of Joseph. But Joseph's life is very much like ours. Like there are highs and lows. There are setbacks and promotions. There, there are times of great triumph. There are times of great tragedy. And what you see in the life of Joseph is the choice he makes in how he shows up and how that affects his life and the choices that other people make, how they show up, how they choose to show up. And you're going to see in the life of Joseph something that doesn't necessarily mirror your experience, but it rhymes with your experience. And you'll start with Joseph at 17, and at 17, he makes very 17-year-old decisions. And like all of us, 
as we get older, when we learn, we make better decisions. He chooses how he's going to show up, how he's going to interact, who he's going to be. And that's a power that all of us have. That's a power that you have. In your relationships with your husband or your wife, with who you're dating, who you want to date, at school, in your workplace, on that Zoom meeting, you get to choose how you're going to show up. What you don't get to choose is how everyone reacts to how you show up. But you get to choose how you show up. And his story begins in Genesis 37. And this is what Genesis 37 tells us. This is how the story begins. It says, Jacob, this is Joseph's father. Jacob ended up settling in the land where his father had lived as a foreigner for many years, in the land of Canaan. Here now is the story of Jacob and his family. Joseph, when he was a young man of 17, often shepherded the flocks along with his brothers. One day, he was with Bilhah and Zilpah's sons, his half-brothers. He decided to report back to their father about the things that they were doing wrong. And that's how some of you like to show up for everything. What's my job today? To point out what everybody else is doing wrong. Like you are just perfect at where everybody else is imperfect. And this is what Joseph decides to do because he's 17. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he came along when he was an old man, which is true. But I want us to be careful. I want you to read this story as we walk through it over the next seven weeks because Joseph was born to Jacob when he was an old man. But he's not the only son born to Jacob when he's an old man. And yet Jacob still loves him more. So Israel presented Joseph with a special robe he had made for him, a spectacularly colorful robe with long sleeves in it. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than the rest, they grew to hate him and couldn't find it in themselves to speak to him without resentment or argument. One day Joseph had a dream. When he told the dream to his brothers, they hated him even more. Joseph says, please listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly, my sheaf rose up and stood up, and then your sheaves all gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Joseph's brothers say, are you serious? You think you are somehow destined to reign over us. You think you are going to be our king. This dream and what he told them about it made them hate him even more. But Joseph had another dream and he made the mistake of telling them about this dream too. Listen, I've had another dream. I saw the sun, the moon and 11 stars bowing down to me. When he told this dream to his father and his brothers, even his father scolded him. What kind of dream is this? Do you actually think your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down 
before you, Joseph's brothers had become extremely jealous of him. But his father, though he scolded Joseph, kept this dream in the back of his mind. So you've got this family and you've got a father who has one child that he loves more than the other children, which is just bad parenting. And so for this child, he gets him a robe and literally what it is, it's a, it's a robe, not necessarily like rainbow colors or many colors, it's just adorned. It's got all this ornamentation on it and it was popular in the time, especially popular with rich people and with people who lived in Egypt. And he gives it to Joseph. And because he loves this one son more and he treats him differently, his brothers hate him. And Joseph is 17 and he doesn't know better. So he has these dreams where he is exalted and they bow down to him and he tells them. And this is why you need to read your Bibles because nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the scripture does it says that God gave Joseph these dreams. Like you might've heard that in VBS, but the Bible actually doesn't say that. Joseph is having these dreams and then he's telling his brothers because he doesn't have the sense not to. This is how they are showing up for one another. Jacob is treating one son better than the others and Joseph is receiving his father's treatment and acting on it. I am better than the rest of you. And the reason I know it is because dad treats me that way. This is how we encounter one another. And Genesis says, they hated him and they hated him and they hated him more. And the thing that you and I know is that hate always leads to the same place. Violence. Now, if you know this story, you have an idea of what's coming, but you knew what was coming already because hate always leads to violence. One of my favorite philosophers and thinkers was a man named uh, Jonathan Sachs. He was a rabbi in England and he wrote a book about religious violence. And he says, religious violence has at its root Mimetic desire. And mimetic desire always leads to violence. This is what he says. He says, mimetic desire is wanting what someone else has because they have it. This is behavior we often see in children. When one ch child is given a new toy, the others suddenly discover they want it. They may never have wanted it before, but they do now because someone else has it. Mimetic desire is not just wanting to have what someone else has. Ultimately, it is wanting to be what someone else is. Desiring this man's art and that man's scope. We wish we were them. This is mimetic desire. Often it leads to violence because if I want what you have, sooner or later we will fight. Girard, and he's talking about Rene Girard who was a French philosopher. Girard then suggested that one of the prime sources of strife is not between father and son, but between brothers, sibling rivalry. 
So here's what you need to know about Genesis and Joseph. Here's what you need to know about your own story. The roots of our own story as followers of God has a lot to do with sibling rivalry. That one brother wants what the other brother has or the other brother is supposed to get. And it leads to this spiral of darkness and violence. It is the story of Joseph and his brothers. It is the story of their father, Jacob, and his brother Esau. It is the story of Cain and Abel over and over and over again. It is sibling rivalry and it always leads to violence. And you wanna know what the answer to violence, the answer to sibling rivalry is? Come back in six weeks and we'll tell you. So the brothers go off and Joseph stays home and Jacob needs something from the rest of his brothers. So they send Joseph off to go tell him. And this is how Genesis picks up the story. Joseph's brothers say to themselves, oh, here comes the great dreamer. Let's kill him and throw his body into one of the pits. Then we can tell everyone a wild animal killed and devoured him. We'll see then what becomes of his stupid dreams. When Reuben heard the plan, he tried to help Joseph. Reuben says, let's not kill him. We don't need to shed any blood to be free of him. Let's just toss him into some pit here in the wilderness. We don't need to lay a hand on him. Reuben thought perhaps he could secretly come back later and get Joseph out of the pit and take him home to their father before any more harm came to him. The brothers agreed. When Joseph arrived, they ripped his robe off of him, the fancy colorful robe he always wore that his father had made for him, and they threw him in the pit. Now this pit happened to be an empty cistern. There was no water in it, which is important because he couldn't drown. Then they sat down to eat. Soon they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelite traders approaching from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with gum, balm, and a fragrant resin, and they were on their way down to Egypt with their goods. And Judah says, what profit will it be for us if we just kill our brother and conceal the crime? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites instead. We won't have to lay a hand on him then. He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh and blood. All of the brothers agreed. As the Midianite traders were passing by, they brought Joseph up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for about eight ounces of silver, the usual price of young male slaves. The traders set off with Joseph in the direction of Egypt. Now Reuben had not been around when the caravan came by. So when Reuben came back to the cistern later and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothing in agony and despair. He went back to his brothers. The boy is gone. What do I do now? What am I supposed to tell father? I understand this story. You can't miss Reuben. Because in the ancient world, the way things worked was there was a process for how inheritance and land and slaves, belongings were passed on to the next generation. 
And it's still that way in many parts of the world now. It's a simple process called primogeniture. And what primogeniture means is that the firstborn gets the greater share. The firstborn inherits the mantle of the father and is in charge. And especially when the father's alive and the children are together, the firstborn is in charge. And in this story, the firstborn is Reuben. So you remember some of you who are like me, who are the younger siblings, like when your parents would leave and they would say, your older brother, your older sister, like they're in charge. And you thought, he's an idiot. Why is he in charge? Well, it didn't really matter if their capability just mattered that they were the first. And that's Reuben. He's in charge. So, so a good friend of mine, Jonathan, has five children. And I know we have members of our community here who have five or seven or 10 children. There was a woman who worked for me when we were living in California. She had 10 children. And so Jonathan invited me to his house one day when we were in Abilene and all of his kids were going to be there. And I had this question in the back of my head this whole time. How do you raise five children? Because I've got two and I feel like I've just got my hands full. So we went over to his house. We had a great night. His kids were there. I came back. I talked to my wife, Rochelle, and I said, I figured out how you raise five children. And she said, how? I said, you don't. You raise the first couple and let them raise the rest of them. And that's the world that Reuben was in. He's the firstborn. And so he's the one who stands up and says, you know what? We don't have to kill him. And that's why they all agree. But they only all agree while he's there with them. And so when you're reading the scriptures, there's a certain way that Christians, especially Western Christians, read the scripture because something happened to us in the enlightenment where we started looking for facts and patterns and codes and we tried to decipher the Bible. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but that's not how everyone reads the Bible. Because if you were to talk to Hebrew scholars, people who have a tradition of reading the Hebrew Bible in a rabbinic way, they would tell you that in every story, especially stories like this, that there is a narrative, and that narrative is the story of Joseph, but there's always a counter-narrative. And in this story, it's Reuben, the one who doesn't act the same way as everyone else acts, which is surprising, because if Joseph's dreams are true, if Jacob is really right in loving Jacob, Joseph more than the rest of his sons, the only real loser is Reuben. Who's supposed to be loved more by the father in a world of primogeniture? The firstborn. Who are the other siblings supposed to bow down to? The firstborn. If anything is being robbed from anyone, it's Reuben. And what you see when you open up the scriptures, when you open up the pages of Gen Genesis, are these consecutive stories where the firstborn is supposed to be the select, the natural, the inheritor, and he never 
is. It's always another brother. And Reuben is the one who loses if Jacob and Joseph are right. So he goes away and he comes back. He goes to look for his little brother because his plan was always to rescue him, take him back to dad. No harm, no foul, because that's what he's supposed to do as the older brother. He's supposed to take care of everyone else. And he says, the boy is gone. Literally, he says, the boy is not. He reunites with his brothers. And this is what Genesis tells us happens next. It says the brothers took Joseph's fancy colorful robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped it in the blood. Then they took the special robe to their father. We found this, father. Tell us if you think this is Joseph's robe. Jacob says, this is my son's robe. A wild animal must have killed and eaten him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to shreds. Then Jacob wailed in agony and tore his clothes with the depth of emotional pain only a father could feel for losing a child. He dressed in sackcloth and mourned his son for a long time. And his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, I will go to the grave grieving for my son. This is how deeply Joseph's father grieved for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites arrived in Egypt and sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers and the captain of the guard. I just want you to see what's happening. Joseph's brothers go to their father with this robe that has been dipped in blood and they say, Is this Joseph's? And Jacob says, a wild animal must have killed him. They don't lie to their father. They just let him come to his own conclusions. And this is how they have chosen to show up for their father, as deceivers. And if you know the story of Jacob well, when he stole the birthright from his brother Esau, you now see that he is a son who deceived his own father and now he is a father being deceived by his sons. Because so often, the way we choose to show up in the world is visited right back to us. And we choose to be haughty or arrogant, jealous, deceitful. When we choose to be bigger than we are, to think other people ought to bow to our wishes. Many times we are just choosing in advance the treatment that we will receive. And guess what happens? He grieves for his sons. 
Now imagine this. You're one of Joseph's brothers. And for you, the problem has been that dad loves Joseph more. And so you come up with this great plan to get rid of Joseph. And you go all the way through it, you let your father believe that his son has been killed and you know what you get for it? Nothing. Because now Jacob decides that he will grieve for his son forever. You thought the problem was dad didn't love you enough and you're still not getting that love. Which for us presents a question. The ways that we, the ways that you and I are choosing to show up in the world, whether it's in a relationship with a spouse, someone we're dating, wherever it is that we go, the people that we surround ourselves with, the way that we're choosing to show up, is it getting you what you want? Or does it just create more turmoil, more confusion, more hurt, more pain? Because here's the thing, you actually do get to choose how you want to show up. And no one in this story has chosen well. Jacob chooses to love one child. Joseph chooses to be arrogant. His brothers choose to be murderous and then go into the slave trade. Reuben chooses cowardice. And in the end, no one is happy. Is it getting you what you want? Like the behavior that you're in the midst of now. Because all of us, all of us have that group of people or that person, that relationship that just feels really triggering to us. And whenever you're in the presence of that person, whenever they're around, it feels like something inside of you shrinks and you are suddenly back in the same place emotionally that you were with that person maybe five, 10, or 15 or 20 years ago. So when I was 32, I was taking a trip to go see my mother in Atlanta. And I've always been very close to my mother. We talk multiple times a week. But at that point, we had had multiple tense interactions consecutively over several years. And I had a life coach at the time and I was telling him about it and worried and had anxiety about going to see my mom. And I told him, the truth is, like, just recently, every time I'm with her, I feel like I'm 10 years old. He just leans back and says, how about this? What if this time you decided to show up a man? Because that's something you can decide. And you can decide how you show up. What you can't decide is how everyone responds to how you show up. And we have spent so much time trying to control the responses, something that we can't control, that we have forgotten this piece that we can. You truly can, in your life, choose 
how you want to show up. And I believe that when we choose wisely, that will make all the difference in your story. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.